Maybe if you don't want to talk, you could just listen. And you, you're looking radiant, and you are also listening to the latest episode of Dimed Out Season 2, Episode 5. Yeah, and it's going to be an interesting one, hopefully. It's going to be interesting, educational, fun, strange, beguiling, and all sorts of other things as well. If you missed last week's episode, episode 4, then you need to go and check that out, especially if you are a fan of incredible, amazing, true stories, like the kind of thing that you read or you hear and you're like, that cannot be true, but then your mind is blown when you find out it actually is. Yeah, if that is up your strasse, then you need to go check out last week's episode, where I got to sit down and talk with author Sapphire Gia about her memoir, and it is a memoir, that's the thing, that's the crazy thing. It's not fiction, it's a memoir about her memoir Survive, which basically, in a nutshell, recounts the experience she had when she was 11 years old, where she survived for about a week in the freezing cold, brutal, unforgiving conditions of the Yukon wilderness in the winter. Barely any provisions, barely any food, and on top of that, she had to look after her older deaf brother. All of that is insane for anybody at any age, but at 11 absolutely crazy. So yeah, I got to sit down with Sapphire last week, talk to her about the book, talk to her about that experience, about all the things that have happened since, and all the sort of emotional entanglements that lead to that incredible story, and that have led to what has occurred afterwards. So yeah, if uh, yeah, if that kind of thing is, is your, your bag, you definitely want to check it out, even if it isn't. I mean, just the story alone is is definitely worth diving into. This week, gang, we are all over the shop. It is a very random episode in the sense that it is just about a lot of different things. So I've had this idea for a while. I, like many people, love YouTube. I fall down rabbit holes so easy, especially when I'm researching stuff. But over the last two and a bit years, I've had a to-watch later playlist. The vast majority... I haven't even touched, so I thought in the interest of learning some new stuff, finding some fascinating things, I thought I would dig into that, pull out some select videos that I've put away to watch later, that I've squirreled away for later viewing but never got round to watching, until now. So yeah, that is what is on the menu, a mix of different things. Now you've got two options of how you can play this, if you want to go in, and I suggest you do, I suggest you be brave and you just dive headfirst into this not knowing what to expect. You can dive straight in and just see what happens and take it as it comes, kind of like life, or if you are more inclined to sort of cherry pick the things you want to listen to, which is completely understandable and totally fair, then you can do that as well. What I'm going to do is I'm going to put an episode breakdown in the notes. So whatever device you're listening to this on, scroll through the notes in the description and you should find each topic that we talk about in this episode with a timestamp. So if there's things that you just have zero interest in, you can scrub past those and you can jump to the things that you do like, kind of like picking all the best things out of Equality Street Tin, which, by the way, is always definitely 
strawberry. So yeah, two approaches, going completely blind or just pick out the things you find fascinating. I'm not going to be mad. Whichever way you do it, whatever works best for you. But that's what we're doing. We're doing a sort of shuffle mix. My mind on shuffle, I guess. It's a little bit different. It's a little bit more experimental. It's not quite as rigid as other episodes. It's not quite as focused. But if you enjoy it, if you like this format, you want to see more of this, then just simply let me know and we can do this all over again with some different stuff to talk about. But for the time being, jump in, choose your path, choose wisely. And I hope that by the end of your journey, you have enjoyed this. You found something fun. You found something educational. You found something maybe enlightening. You found something. So the first thing that I'm going to be looking at, the first thing I'm pulling from my to-watch playlist is a video called Chasms. That's the title, Chasms, Asali, Divan, Ecclesiastes. I have no idea what this is. I have no idea who that is. All I know is it's a small TED talk. I do not remember why I added this at all. In fact, I don't remember adding this. So I'm curious. I'm starting off with this because of the curiosity. I have no idea what this is going to be about. As I said, I have no idea who Asali Divan Ecclesiastes is. Hopefully, we're going to find out now. The distance between what we say and what we really mean. The raging river that flows between what actually happened and our convenient memories. So I went into that, as I said, not knowing who this lady was, what this video was, why I even put it in there to begin with, but I am so pleased that I did, and I'm so pleased that I'm starting this off with this video, Chasms, which is a spoken word piece by Asali Devan Ecclesiastes, who I have found out is a writer and an activist and clearly a performer there, as you can tell just from that little snippet by her cadence, just clearly just a great author, a great speaker, which is no doubt why Ted actually signed her up to do this. But yeah, if you are unfamiliar with this piece, if you've never heard it before, then yeah, do yourself a favour. Go check it out in full. It's about four and a half minutes in total, but it is a very potent, powerful and resonating four and a half minutes, especially now, especially at this point that we find ourselves in after Getting past the last year and finding ourselves about to enter a different stage, you know, we're still recovering, we're still dealing, but we are looking at a sort of brighter future with vaccines, etc. We're at the start of a paradigm shift, I feel, in terms of what we've been through the last year, but hopefully just in terms of our general attitude and behaviour, which is pretty much what Chasms, that spoken word piece, talks about and kind of addresses is our attitude and behaviour with other people and with ourselves and the idea of, of who we are, the idea of ourselves that we have, which I find infinitely interesting. I saw recently a quote, and this is a slight tangent from the French writer Albert Camus, and it goes like this, man is the only creature who refuses to be what he is. And I find that extremely curious and kind of sadly true. Because we do, we put on a front, we put on a face, we put on a pantomime for other people, we play different characters, different roles. It's very seldom you meet somebody who is completely, totally unabashedly honest with themselves, about themselves, to themselves and others. 
And I feel like th- this piece, Chasms, is kind of digging into that, to the idea of identity, of being a true representation of ourselves and a true representation of, of what it is we want and who it is we actually want to be. Yeah, identity is a weird thing, man. It's, it's a strange beast. But yeah, that was an incredibly powerful piece of spoken word. And yeah, a pretty great way to kick things off. We learn early that those with softer hearts suffer. So we allow lean emotion to reign, never noticing that only strain has been the fruit of our restraints. We haven't escaped pain, and our battle scars are far from faint yet and still. Despite our desire and willingness to heal, we often find ourselves fighting hard in the paint, holding on to false images of everything we ain't. So we're about to take a very strange leap from that subject to the next. And yes, that pun was very much intended. We go from beautiful, poignant, purposeful, much needed spoken word pieces to insane train surfing in Berlin. Yeah, it's a thing. So if you are unfamiliar with train surfing of any variety, insane or just regular, it is pretty much what it sounds like. It's people on top of trains as they're moving, as in the kind of thing you've seen in, say, like a James Bond film. Yeah, it's it's like, I, I guess, an adrenaline sport, an extreme sport, I guess, except I don't really think I can classify it as that because there's no sport aspect to it. It's like an extreme hobby. Yeah, I think that's probably the best and most accurate way to describe it as an extreme hobby because you do it for fun. I guess it's like a recreational joy. Yeah, in which you could possibly die. You know, there is a genuine real danger to this. Obviously, you're riding on top of a train at any point if it picks up too much speed, if you're not prepared... Or just, you know, through the natural behaviour of physics, you could find yourself thrown off it and die. And I guess that's probably the sort of excitement behind it for a lot of people that are trained surfing, I suppose. That mixed with the sort of fear of technically trespassing, which this video seems to kind of get into a little bit. So the video is a production, a really well done production actually. The production value of this video is great from the the 4K drone shots overlooking Berlin, which look absolutely stunning and gorgeous. And I'm going to be honest, right off the top, I'm going to tell you, that's probably the bit that I actually enjoyed most about the video, was the overhead and bird's-eye view shots of Berlin through this 4K camera. Yeah, this is something that I just, I kind of get, but at the same time, I don't. So the kind of bit kind of stems from, yeah, I understand the idea of doing this thing that makes you presumably feel completely and utterly alive. The the idea of finding yourself on the knife edge of death is probably the most alive anyone will ever feel when there is a real possible chance of dying, when you are on that balance, when you are on that tightrope, when you are climbing that ridiculously tall building, when you are surfing on that train. Yeah, I guess that is just uh, something that will fill you with not just adrenaline, but just like life-affirming euphoria. And it does, without a question of a doubt, display a great sense of bravery. But at the same time, it kind of also displays a great sense of stupidity too. Or maybe there's a space in between. Maybe there's a Venn diagram and there's a circle in between bravery and stupidity. And in there somewhere is train surfing. 
So, as mentioned, it is insane train surfing in Berlin, and it is a team of two guys. The first fella is the train surfer himself, and he purchases a ticket, gets into a German train station, climbs up to a high advantage point, and then drops in on a train. One that isn't moving at full pelt, one that looks like it's either stationary or is gradually slowing down. So it's, I guess, as safe as it possible to jump onto a train this sounds just ridiculous even saying out loud it's not safe to jump on top of a train at all but it's probably the safest way out of all the ridiculous options you could have once on the train he lands off for some reason two colored smoke grenades and sort of waves them around whilst the the second guy in the team is operating the drone camera as mentioned before getting all those lovely shots those long <laughs> long shots and overhead i I am genuinely more enamored by the cinematography than the actual real life human stunt work here i mean it's impressive it is impressive it's dangerous it's insane and it's impressive but honestly yeah (laughs) so you've got logistics man and drone operator getting all the good shots and then you have the actual train surfer with a first person perspective he's got like a body cam of some kind like a gopro or something it's point of view and you're seeing his view on the train, which admittedly is actually kind of exciting at first. But then after a while, it kind of fades. The sort of excitement, the novelty of it wears out, and it kind of becomes a little bit, especially if you dig further into these types of videos, it kind of just becomes like watching a first-person video game, but without the joy of actually controlling what happens, which I do understand is a thing, considering how big streaming is, how big sort of game streaming has become, and esports, etc. I understand there are people that love that. I have just never been one for watching other people play video games, because instinctively, even as a kid, when it was the other person's turn to play, when you would pass the controller, take one life each, I would hate it, because I would just be itching and and just ready to jump in and, and play myself. I just, I I don't personally get watching other people play video games. Yeah, some people can be very entertaining, but it's just like, if it's something I can do myself and experience, then I want to be doing it. Mind you, that doesn't translate to train surfing. I have no desire to do this, ever. But yeah, I feel like this video and videos like it, videos of this nature, watching parkour videos and, and train surfing and stuff like this, yeah, it's it's kind of interesting, it's kind of exciting to begin with, but for me, it's got a limited appeal, but... I do understand, and looking at the sheer volume of videos like this on YouTube, there is definitely an audience for it. So, I don't know, if you are into this kind of thing, if you like this, if you're a fan, then it's it's maybe worth checking out. But for me, it was it was kind of an interesting anomaly, but it kind of lost its its charm after a few minutes. As I said, the, the drone stuff, that, to me... <laughs> was was sadly uh, more enticing than the, the life-risking stunt work. Speaking of cinematography, the next video in our mix is William Friedkin picking out DVDs. Yes, that's more my speed. Yeah, you can keep your, your dangerous dicking about on top of a train. I'm much more at home in a closet with William Friedkin pulling out Blu-rays. That sounds so weird. So weird, but that's pretty much what this video is. It's William Friedkin over at Criterion, which for those of you who don't know, those of you who do have interesting and extreme hobbies, you may not know, but Criterion is basically a a film library. They publish and put out films, they restore films, and they put out sort of like ultimate editions of films. It's just, just, it's great. It's wonderful. Love it. And they have this, this infamous closet in which they have asked many people 
throughout the industry over the years to go in and pull out DVDs and Blu-rays and talk about films. And that's what this video is. It's William Friedkin going into that closet, which one day, by the way, let's just do a bit of positive manifestation here. One day, I'd like to find myself invited into that closet and be able to just comb through all the films and maybe take some home with me. I've got a picture that in my brain whilst you listen to this. And amazingly, even some of the Blu-rays and digitals that I've seen are not as lovingly prepared as the ones that uh, Criterion makes, <laughs> most of which are in here. Uh, and to tell you the truth, most of which I have. So, a few things. First and foremost, there is absolutely no reason for William Friedkin to just come in and do a humble brag of that proportion. I mean, the man has some timeless classics under his belt. Sorcerer, The French Connection, The Exorcist, obviously. But yeah, he wanders into the, the majestic Criterion closet and he's just like, yeah, I've got most of these. It's like that kid at school that would always brag about having the new game the week of release or, or pretending he's already had it a week before everybody else. It's just like, bore off, mate. Bore off, Billy. Coming in here. Billy Brazen Big Bollocks bragging about your DVD collection. We don't want to hear it. You don't need to do it, William. You don't need to do it. Just come in and talk lovingly about some films, which admittedly he does do. He comes in and he pulls out something like Pickpocket and, and Eight and a Half is the one that he just gushes over, um, you know, which is understandable. Both of these films on their own are, are just timeless classics. He pulls out The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, which is a little bit more obscure, but for the most part, he plays it kind of safe. He plays it kind of safe with his picks, which was a little bit disappointing. I mean, he's pulling out some absolute cornerstones of progressive film making. But he, yeah, a little bit safe there for me, William. A little bit maybe too obvious, especially with eight and a half. A little bit on the nose. But who am I to critique William Friedkin? I didn't make The Exorcist. I didn't make Sorcerer. I certainly didn't make The French Connection. I didn't break the rules in the 70s. I didn't push the envelope. But then again, I didn't also slap somebody to get a better performance out of them. So, you know, there's that. I mean, now I guess we're technically equals, right? Sure. Anyway. Yeah, William Friedkin, interesting picks, but kind of safe. What was more interesting was the, uh, the the related video to the side that I watched, which was Bill Hader's picks. As it turns out, Bill Hader is apparently a huge film nerd, a huge cinephile. And when he's in there, the video's only a few minutes, definitely worth a watch, only a few minutes. He's in there, and his little face lights up as if he's been allowed to go into Santa's workshop and get a private tour. And that is exactly the feeling and look you should have. When you enter the Majestic Criterion Closet, you don't just go in going, yeah, these are all right, but I've got most of these. You don't do that. You go in and you just soak in the magic. And that's what Bill Hader does. And then he's pulling out some more obscure picks. He's pulling out House or Houseu, which is a film I'd never heard of until he'd done that. And he's pulling out Salo and making cracks about it being a great date movie. It's not, by the way. If you look into Salo, it's, it's anything but a great date movie. I've never watched it. And there's a reason, because it's basically about a group of adolescents uh, being subjected to like 120 days of physical, mental and sexual torture. So, yeah, not one that I'm going to be checking out anytime soon and definitely not one, I think, for a date movie, especially a first date. Because if you pull that out for a first date, it's a surefire way of guaranteeing you never get a second date. Anyway, that was kind of interesting. It was kind of... Um, 
a little bit disappointing with William Friedkin, I'll be honest, but Bill Hader kind of made up for it. He kind of came in and saved the day. What I will say is if you are into films, or if you are wanting to get more into film, if you are wanting to expand your cinematic horizons, maybe you are looking for some more obscure picks for this new year, or maybe you just want to know and learn about the influences and just treasured films of some of your favourite directors, actors, etc., then yeah, definitely check out Criterion's YouTube channel and check out some of these videos in which many people have wandered into the majestic closet, most of which, I hope, have treated it with the respect it deserves. The best date movie on earth. This is a great date movie. My favorite part of this movie is when, um, and then the guy, he, he goes into a room and he finds his plate of if ever there was one, that is probably the perfect segue to our next video in the playlist, which is Alistair Crowley, the wickedest man in the world, explained in five minutes. Outside of actually researching Crowley and esoteric groups and magic stuff for something that I was working on, one of the reasons I added this in the first place was because it really did pique my curiosity to whether or not you actually can explain who Aleister Crowley is in five minutes. I mean, five minutes is a pretty short timeline to explain who anybody is, but a particular figure like Aleister Crowley, who has a lot, and I mean a lot, of history, some of it myth, some of it folklore, some of it hard and fact, yeah, it's, it's pretty dense. It is a very dense and very strange and yet fascinating background and sort of legacy. I guess would be a word to use to explain in five minutes. If you have ever looked into occultism or esoteric groups or strange um, sort of secret spooky clandestine organizations or ritual magic or all of the above, then chances are you probably have heard of his name in passing. You may have heard of it in passing through pop culture as well, perhaps. But if you haven't and you are interested in digging into those particular topics, then, uh, yeah, this is actually a pretty good video to dive into. It is pretty broad in terms of its spectrum, but again, you know, five minutes isn't really a great amount of time to talk about anybody, let alone somebody with, as I've said, so much history. Uh, but yeah, it kind of gives you a Cliff Notes version of who Aleister Crowley was. It digs into the fact that he came from a family that were evangelicals, evangelical parents, went to an evangelical boarding school, talks about how his father's death was a huge catalyst for his change in behaviour, how it led to his rebellion and hatred of his mother and the church, which then of course led to all sorts of destructive behaviour, drugs and just an all-consuming obsession with sex, lewd poetry, and then of course, you know, as the natural progression is, a growing interest in magic, rituals and secret societies. Of course, for those of you who know anything about Crowley, it does touch upon very briefly the Golden Dawn. It takes a very brief look at his time in covens and other masonic lodges and then how he just kind of grew his own institution. Furthermore, and again it touches on this briefly, but how he grew into just the lifestyle that he was practicing, his interests and how they kind of consumed him and just gave him this insatiable appetite for more sin and power and just free living. In a lot of ways, Crowley was basically like an egotistical selfish pervert, but he did also kind of open up the door to sort of counterculture, um ideas, I guess, you know, a different way of, of living outside of the expected norm. Granted, it went a little bit extreme, and, you know, most people that are looking to kind of break out of the, the regular system 
Outside of conventional living, don't often go and practice rituals and sex magic, but he kind of opened up the door to the idea for a lot of people that there is more than just one way of living. So, you know, there's that, which is kind of good. There's a couple of things in the video that I actually hadn't heard before and kind of sent me down a rabbit hole independent of this video. And uh, I'm going to be honest, I'm just going to say this first and foremost. I don't know how much I actually believe this is true. It may very well be. I haven't really dug too deep into it. But there are a lot of things within his his history, as I said, that are kind of a little bit myth and folklore. At least that's how it seems. And I do question whether or not this is part of that sort of folklore. So, according to the video, Crowley was basically recruited by British intelligence to become an agent of propaganda. And during World War II, he actually became the editor of the pro-German magazine, The Fatherland. Now, from what I can understand and what I've gained, this gave him the sort of opportunity and the position to sort of pitch ideas and information to the Allies. And apparently, it also allowed him to distribute occult pamphlets throughout the German countryside. These pamphlets painted the Nazis as satanic. Now, can I see him doing this? Yes, it is definitely within his wheelhouse. Did he actually do it? I don't know, because I actually haven't dug into that. I haven't really followed that up. But it's an interesting idea nonetheless, the fact that this sort of renowned occult magician who was obviously very charismatic, had somehow got himself into a position where he was hired by British intelligence to help fight against the Nazis. Yeah, I, whether or not it is true, again, I don't know, but it is really quite fascinating. As are these claims, and again, I don't know if these are true or not, but they are absolutely fascinating. So apparently Crowley was also enlisted to help interrogate Rudolf Hess, after Hess flew a plane from Germany to Scotland in the approach to negotiate peace. He apparently also falsified astrology charts to throw off Hitler's soothsayers. And, strangely enough, kind of tying the World War II section here to a previous World War II episode we've done, he worked very closely with Ian Fleming. Yes, that Ian Fleming, creator of James Bond, and through their work, he influenced and inspired the character of Blofeld. Yeah, James Bond's biggest antagonist is apparently based on Aleister Crowley. Now, if you look at them, you can definitely see the physical resemblance for sure. Whether or not there was any sort of direct influence or input or inspiration from Crowley, I don't know. Again, again, I just haven't dug into this too deeply. But I will say this, if you find any of this interesting at all, and you would like a sort of separate individual single episode on Crowley, whether it's just a base covering episode or looking at some of these strange and curious claims, then yeah, let me know, because I would be very open to do that. Something that appears in the video that really caught me off guard is the fact that the BBC recognised Alistair Crowley as the 73rd greatest Briton of all time. Now, this is... True. In 2002, the BBC did do a TV series about the greatest Britons of all time, and on that list, Alistair Crowley is number 73, and it's out of 100, so that's a pretty good spot. I mean, it's a pretty good spot, considering the entire history of Britain and famous Britons. 73 is not bad. If you are wondering, he is two places above Bob Geldof, who is at number 75. That's right, Bob Geldof, Live Aid, and of course, most notably, obviously, Doi, the singer of the Boomtown Rats. 
It's two places above Bob Geldof. He's four places above the pop star Robbie Williams. Yeah, it was done in 2002, to be fair. He's also five places above... Now, this is kind of a bit of a head-scratcher. He's five places above Edward Jenner, who was the inventor of the smallpox vaccine. Now, I know that Alistair Crowley is quite prolific. He's infamous. Well, no, he's just... He's famous. Yeah, because at this point it goes beyond infamy, right? Or does it? When does infamy end and for me <laughs> actually start? I don't know. I don't know where I'm going, but he is five places above Edward Jenner, inventor of the smallpox vaccine, which, yeah, it's a little bit of a strange placement in my eyes. If you were curious, Aleister Crowley also ranks higher on this list than J.R.R. Tolkien, he of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, Sir Walter Raleigh, and Charles Babbage, who was the inventor of the first programmable computer. Yeah. Speaking of computers, shockingly, and I mean shockingly, number 21 on the list is Alan Turing. Why he's that low, I have no idea. Uh, yeah, uh, there are several people above him which are just absolutely baffling. And this is, this is, this goes beyond baffling, this is ridiculous. Above Alan Turing is Michael Crawford. Now, most people will know Michael Crawford from his, his pretty long, lengthy run as Phantom of the Opera. Other people will know him from the 70s slapstick sitcom. Some of us do have him. Yeah, he's on the list, and he's higher than Alan Turing. That's right, Frank Spencer is higher than the man who is basically the godfather of modern computing and who helped crack the Enigma machine. That, I just... Why? I mean, he's got a lovely singing voice, and I mean a lovely singing voice, and he's a fantastic physical comedian. But come on, higher than Alan Turing? Nah. If you were wondering who is number one at the top of this list, and I'm sure you probably are at this point, it is, or it was, as of 2002, Winston Churchill. And, yeah, I'm not even touching that, as I just don't have the time. But, as an interesting Alistair Crowley-related side note... I also read during my slight digging into this topic that, uh, and again, I don't know how true this is, but apparently he was sort of responsible for creating the V for victory symbol that was used by Churchill as a counter sigil against the swash sticker. So yeah, the famous V for victory was apparently the brainchild of Britain's most notorious magician. I also read... And this is ridiculous. This is this is even more ridiculous than, than Michael Crawford being placed higher than Alan Turing. I read that there is a theory that Aleister Crowley is Barbara Bush's dad, which would make him George W. Bush's granddad. Now, the only thing that I can find to base this on is that someone put a picture of Crowley next to Barbara Bush and went, ooh, don't they look alike? I guess he could be her dad. And then obviously the internet being the internet took that and made it into fact. So, yeah, there's that. You can look it up if you want. It's it's curious. And they do share a sort of physical similarity, but, yeah, I, I don't think Barbara Bush is the, the product of, of a sex magic ritual. Yeah, I... Oh, what an awful image. Hmm. We are going to move on, I promise you, in just a moment. But if you are interested in all of this wonderfully weird stuff and fascinating stuff, if you want to dig further into Crowley, then you need to really look at the Led Zeppelin connection and in particular Jimmy Page's just I guess adoration 
and and deep rooted curiosity for the the teachings and the writings of Aleister Crowley. I mean, Led Zeppelin were always that group, right? They were always into sort of mysticism and folklore and spirituality. You could see it in the album covers and the music. But Jimmy Page, guitarist for Led Zeppelin, was really really into this and the link between him and Crowley is genuinely really fascinating especially when you dive into his relationship with Kenneth Anger the filmmaker who in his own right is a very curious cat but yeah you if you dig into that you'll find out about the Kenneth Anger curse that was placed upon Jimmy Page and all the things that if you believe in such things if you believe in vexes if you believe in magic all the things that happened because of the curse that Kenneth Anger put on Jimmy Page. It didn't necessarily affect Jimmy, as it did everybody else, in some pretty tragic circumstances as well. Yeah, so go check that out, or don't, if you don't want to. I mean, the choice is yours, it's up to you. Or is it? Yeah, more on that in just a little bit, but for now, we're talking chimpanzees. Alright, so this video comes from Discovery UK and its title is Most Brutal Chimpanzee Society Ever Discovered and it really pretty much, for a part of the video at least, does exactly what it says on the tin. So this is a video that dives us into the depths of the Nagogo and Kabali National Park in Uganda which has the largest remaining population of chimps in the country. At the time... Uh, they state that in 2016, the population of chimps was over 200, roughly. That's a lot of chimps in one concentrated area. The video looks at a small sample of that community, and from what I can gather, they've been following this community and these particular chimps for some time. If you have any interest in animals, wildlife, biology, the natural world, it's definitely something I would recommend you check out. I think it's something that you need to see for yourself, especially the visuals. But I will give you a heads up. I will give you a warning. The video, as I said, for a part, lives up to its name. It does exactly what it says on the tin. These chimps are and can be, rather, I should say, because they're not inherently, strictly, solely brutal, but they can be brutal and at one point in this video they are extremely brutal. Outside of starting a fight with a member of their group and sort of jumping in sort of like a pylon as it were just like a, a sort of group attack on one individual of the chimp community for whatever reason they also hunt down a smaller monkey. They climb the tree, they grab it and yeah... I was standing maybe 15 feet from them, watching this. Great male chimpanzees each took an arm or a leg, and they literally started drawing and quartering this monkey. Yeah, on one hand, it is without question pretty grim to see that, and you do actually see it. So yeah, if you're going to go watch it, this is a heads up. If you are sort of a little bit squirmish, towards any sense of violence or things like that yeah it, it may be something you actually want to either skip or just skip ahead a little bit but yeah just go in knowing that you are going to see some some something pretty pretty nasty <laughs> to say the least but it's amazing and it is you know it is amazing to see the natural world as it is as it has been for god knows how long at this point you know that's just the way things are in in the animal kingdom and in that community you know, but it's not all brutality, it's not all just, like, savage destruction, it's not all just violence, 
in this video, they kind of go into different parts which kind of contrast that or counterbalance it. There's a really sort of touching segment which follows two different chimps called Hare and Ellington, and they appear to be best friends. They appear to be joined at the hip. There's a real genuine bond between them. And then at some point, Ellington dies, and Hare is left alone. And it's actually really quite moving. Hare was previously a very social chimp who liked to hang around with these big groups of males. But Hare would just show up, seem to, to look around, look at the other chimps as if he was looking for Ellington, but then not stay for very long and go on his way. So yeah, when Ellington died, it seems that Hare just becomes incredibly depressed and alienated. Yeah, you can see it in his face, in his posture, in his movement, in just his general being. And it's it's a really kind of stark reminder that animals can be incredibly uh, acute to emotions. You know, I think something that we're all guilty of is kind of overlooking just how emotionally intelligent and acute animals as a whole can be. I mean, yeah, we kind of gravitate more towards the emotional intelligence and understanding of domesticated pets like cats and dogs. I mean, if you own a cat or a dog or or a domesticated animal, I'm sure at some point you've kind of contemplated or realised that they are quite attuned with you, especially if you spend a long time with them or you've had them a while, they get to know your rhythms, they get to know your motions, your patterns... And, you know, they can tell when you're down and what have you. But that's usually where we tend to sort of stop the idea and the realisation of emotional intelligence within animals. It's something that we all, myself very much included, kind of gloss over. So this was a really nice reminder, even though it was in a sad setting, it was a good reminder, let's say that instead. It was a good reminder of just how emotional, intelligent and acute animals as a whole can be. Weirdly enough, it also served as a really good reminder that no person, or in this case, no chimpanzee, is an island. You know, all species, to various different degrees, admittedly, have that desire, that want, and in some instances, a level of need for contact and connection. And yeah, seeing Hare without Ellington and sort of really feeling the ghost of Ellington's presence. It was, yeah, really quite a stark reminder of that. The video also touches upon the idea of community as well. As I mentioned a little bit earlier, there is a sort of violent sort of fracture within the community of these chimpanzees, and it kind of sort of divides the community a little bit, and and yeah, that kind of reinforced the idea of tribalism in animals, but also in humans. In fact, the whole video, watching the video, it really brought to mind the fact that, honestly, we're not that different. We're really not. We still have those same functions, those same behaviours, that spectrum that the video shows, the violence, the brutality, the tribalism, the totalitarianism, the tenderness, the idea of connection, of partnership, of community and belonging. These are all things that we still have very much embedded in our nature. And at first I thought, okay, this is a little bit... On the surface, it's a little bit sad to me that we haven't really evolved that far away, but at the same time, it's actually not. The more I thought about it, it's not sad. It's just inevitable. These are elements of us, of conscious beings, of creatures, of species, with a mind and with emotions... These are pretty much just the cornerstones, or at least the pillars of support, that make us who and what we are, I guess. 
All right, gang, if you are into performance art, then this one is definitely for you. The next video I am pulling from the playlist is called Machetes, Drills and Spaghetti with the subtitle Norwegian Art of Destruction. And if that all sounds very random, it's because it is very random. So this video comes from Vice and it is on their official YouTube channel. Now I have to say before we jump into this, I've kind of had a sort of love-hate relationship with Vice over the years. Oh, so is the cat, apparently. <laughs> Just to clarify, the cat actually can't stand Vice anymore. She used to be on board, she used to really like them, think they were doing insightful stuff, fascinating articles, exploring new avenues. Now she just says they're a bit redundant. Not my words. I am just the interpreter for the cat's opinions. That's, that's my role here. That's just what I'm doing here, just interpreting what the cat has to say. So yeah, Vice, this is the kind of thing that I actually really do like from Vice, when they dive into the unknown, when they look at strange things that aren't exactly, um, well, <laughs> regular or, or sort of orthodox, I guess would be a good way to put it. And the artwork that is featured in this video is anything but regular or orthodox. It comes from the Norwegian performance artist Jan Eriksson, who is based in Oslo. Now, Jan has a pretty extensive background, it seems, in doing sculpture work, but it feels like he got bored doing that. I think he describes it as taking too long, too slow to put together, to put the ex exhibits together, to get in contact with the gallery. Like, the whole process of creating and displaying seemed like too much of a laborious process for Yen, and he wanted something quicker, something more instantaneous, something more in your face, I guess. So he moved away from sculpture work and into what he's doing now, which is a series that he calls The Destruction Diaries. And it's quite clear to see why it has that name, because when you look at these pieces, that is exactly what you're getting, just destruction. This is Yan breaking things in very strange and inventive and creative ways. So you're looking at a lot of balloons being destroyed. For some reason, he's really got a thing against balloons. So he's bursting these balloons with uh, a wide range of items, including a toaster, an oscillating fan, which has a knife on a stick attached to it, drills attached to a makeshift skateboard that he's made, and at one point he even uses his own body like a sled going down a wooden ramp whilst he's holding what seems to be like a knife in his mouth. So he slides down and bursts a balloon. Other things include standing on a seesaw full of oranges and uh, a catapult loaded with a bucket of spaghetti. Hence the title of the video, Machetes, Drills and Spaghetti. The catapult full of spaghetti, by the way, is fired straight into his face. Now this is just a sample of what he's doing. There are plenty of other pieces included in the video and within his Destruction Diaries, which he started putting on Instagram, I think, and started getting quite a number of views and likes, and it kind of took off. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking, or what a number of you may be thinking, and that is why. Why did this take off? Why do people find this interesting? Why are people uh, gravitating towards this? Why are even people encouraging this? A lot of people... And you can see it in the comments of the video, which some of them are actually a bit harsh, I'll be honest. But then that is YouTube for you. Um, some people just really, and understandably, I understand why you wouldn't get this. Because it is a bit surreal, it's a bit on the fringe, it is very abstract, and it's, you know, it, it it's pretty out there. But it is, whatever you take it as, whether you take it as just silly events of destruction... <laughs> Or you take it as art, it is without a question, creative. He is looking at objects 
in a different way. He's looking at how things can be used and paired together in different ways. Granted, the results, not that gratifying, I must admit, for me personally. I don't get a great deal out of Yen's work, but I can completely see the merit in his creative, outside-of-the-box thinking. And I'm not saying this to justify it, and I'm not saying that this is what Yen is going for at all, or what it's meant to represent, but uh, being subjective and all, I take it as, you know, a possible, or you could at least view it as a possible sort of commentary on sort of human instinct and our need to destroy, or the very limited attention span we have for things now in the digital age that idea of just instantaneous gratification. You could look at it through that prism. But on the same hand, I do understand people that view it as just a lot of nonsense. (laughs) Because let's be honest, it kind of is. It kind of is a whole bunch of nonsense. But it is, as I said, very creative, very imaginative. And to some people, as is the wonderful subjective nature of art, it's more than just a bunch of silly nonsense. It takes on different meanings. Yeah, it's a a pretty unique idea. Granted, I feel it has its limitations for sure. But, you know, maybe Yen will prove me wrong there. But uh, yeah, go check it out. Because it is in a pretty unique position of sort of straddling both sides of the equation. Tired of doing slow, (laughs) slow art. Before that, you make something and then wait for the show and everything goes so slow. But my mind, creative mind, goes so fast. I just, <laughs> I just uh, find new things to do all the time. So. so the next video that I'm talking about, it was not in my Watch Later playlist. This was kind of a impromptu swerve, and it was based on the algorithm of suggested videos in the right-hand side. It's again from Vice, and this video's title... Again, you'll be able to see this with all the others. This video's title is... I've eaten only mac and cheese for the past 17 years. Here's why. Now, you see that, and, I mean, if your brain is wired similar to mine, which hopefully it isn't for your sake, but if it is, you see that and you're like, yes, click. I mean, there's a real curiosity factor there, right? The fact that this person has only eaten the one thing for the past 17 years, and mac and cheese as well. As much as I love mac and cheese, I could not do it every day. But that is exactly what 20-year-old Austin has done for 17 years. Breakfast, lunch and dinner is a variation of mac and cheese. Now, if your brain is wired like mine, the first question that you have is why? Why mac and cheese and why just that every day? And it's not a case of, as you might imagine straight off the bat, just being a very, very picky eater. Well, it kind of is, but that's doing a disservice to the real reason, the core reason behind Austin's decision. So, as we get into the video, we find out that Austin has selective eating disorder, which is also known as avoidant slash restrictive food intake disorder. Bit of a mouthful, no pun intended. (laughs) Basically, it's an anxiety disorder, one that's categorised by the persistent refusal to eat specific foods or the refusal to eat a type of food because of a negative response that the person gets from certain sensory characteristics of that food, so primarily taste, you would think, or smell, or even texture. So there's something going on there, there's something within the brain that is just emitting a wholly negative response to the taste of pretty much everything except for certain foods, or in Austin's case, 
mac and cheese. That's the only thing, and he talks about this in the video, that's the only thing that he eats, because any time he's tried something else, he's either felt physically sick or he's been sick. Like, it's had that strong of a reaction. Now, prior to watching this video, I've never heard of Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, or ARFID for short. I, I just, I never knew of it. Obviously, there are a litany of eating disorders, but I didn't know that this was actually one of them. So, if this applies to you, I'm putting this out there just in case, on the very off chance that it does, or maybe it applies to somebody you know, and they have never really thought about it actually being a mental issue, a disorder before, then these are some of the symptoms and warning signs. It's also just kind of curious to hear these regardless. So, obviously, you have a short list of acceptable foods and eating foods of similar characteristics, such as crunchy in texture or colourless. So that kind of goes back to the idea of sensory perception and a sensory sort of acceptance being a sort of key factor in, in what people with this disorder actually eat or can eat. You also have a preference for particular food preparation methods. There is an avoidance of vegetables and protein sources, meat, beans, etc., fruits as well. People tend to eliminate food and never gain them back into the diet. So, yeah, it's like a gradual cutting down process for some people. They will start with some things, they will try things, stick with them for a little bit, but then over time, I'm guessing that sensory perception just begins to become stronger and stronger. Other symptoms include poor weight gain and growth. Yeah, it kind of makes sense, yeah. Nutrient deficiencies also make sense. So lack of iron, vitamin A and C, uh, apparently the most common. Uh, people tend to skip one or more entire food groups. They also become emotional or demonstrate stress around unfamiliar food, and food limitations negatively impact normal social behaviours, which is something that comes up in the video. One of the reasons that Austin wants to address this and kind of begin to work on it and trying to help himself overcome this and kind of get past his, his mac and cheese only diet is that he wants to be more sociable. He wants to be able to go out to restaurants to eat with people and not just have mac and cheese you know i imagine it is a form of ostracizing yourself amongst your peers and other people strangers as well you know so yeah those are some of the symptoms and warning signs if that applies again to you or anybody that you may know that hasn't been diagnosed or hasn't really officially recognized they have a disorder some of the risks and complications are co-occurring anxiety disorders which makes sense, you know, just the general sense of anxiety would be something that would branch off from that, for sure. Failure to gain weight, that's predominantly in children. Um, intestinal complications, malnutrition, weight loss, and developmental delays. Which, yeah, especially in young people, I can see that being a huge hindrance to all kinds of areas of development, for sure. What I'm going to do is, if any of that is applicable to you, if you recognise any of those symptoms, either, as I said, in yourself or other people, if you go to the show notes on the website, which is dime-out.com, I'm going to leave a link to the Centre for Discovery page on this. And there's more information, and there is also a confidential consultation phone number there as well, if you need it. If you don't, and hopefully that is the case, it's still good to know about these things, right? It's still good to constantly learn and grow. Anyway, getting sidetracked, admittedly for a good reason, but we are getting sidetracked, so let's jump back into the video and to Austin, the young lad in it, the 20-year-old who for the last 17 years has had nothing to eat but mac and cheese, breakfast, lunch and dinner. Now, admittedly, when I saw this in the sidebar, I did have that flash of curiosity, that sort of interest in the oddity factor of it, like, what the hell is going on with this? What is happening here? 
One of the most refreshing and encouraging things about this video is the fact that it actually does break down what is going on here. See, one of the most encouraging things is that Austin is very cognizant and understanding that he has a disorder and the reasons which have caused him to have it in the first place. You see, the bulk of the video is actually about Austin trying to seek help to overcome this, to get past it, so that he can live a more normal life, that he can be more sociable, and that he can just feel better about himself, and also the health benefits of, you know, varying your diet. So he's looking for a therapist to help him, which admittedly, he says, has not been easy. In fact, he makes a very strong statement on the state of insurance in this country. That is something that is just mind-blowing to me. Granted, I've lived most of my life, by the exception of two years, in a country with socialised medicine. So moving over here and dealing with the whole insurance thing and actually just kind of getting to grasps with the idea that you have to pay for a basic human right is still mind-boggling and cruel and ridiculous in my eyes. And it's really kind of... My feelings about that are extrapolated in, in just one section with Austin where he talks about how mental health is viewed by insurance companies. It's been about two years since I've been to a therapist's office. She had never dealt with anyone who had SED. Her solution was to just just go home and like soak some broccoli and cheese and just try it. If, it, if only it was that easy. Whenever I left there to try and find another therapist's office, it was very, very difficult and has proved to be very difficult to find any reasonable therapist who takes my insurance. Insurance companies seem to think that mental health is like a luxury, you know? Although I haven't actually had any first-hand experience with that here so far, that does seem to be the case from what I've seen, what I've heard. And what have you. Uh, fortunately, Austin does find a therapist that his insurance will take and what have you and begins to start a consultation with her. One of the really refreshing things about this video, and I was not expecting to see this based on the fact that I just clicked on it out of sheer curiosity because it had such a sort of strange clickbaity title. But the thing that is really refreshing from this video is seeing the, the positive sort of reinforcement behind talking about mental health, particularly men talking about mental health. Austin is very candid about his background, about the fact that he has PTSD, that he was a child in an abusive household, that that abusive household led him to basically rely on mac and cheese because it was a meal he could ask for without fear of violent repercussions. I mean, let that sink in just a second. Mac and cheese is a meal he could ask for without fear of just a violent scene unfolding. He also says that it was a meal that he could learn to make himself quite easily. So it kind of became something that it was just, it was on him to make. He could avoid any potential violent conflict in his house by doing it himself. And so it seems to have, out of that sense of fear, and I guess the trauma attached to the abusive childhood, that has led him to this this anxious pattern. So, yeah, I just was not expecting that kind of frank, open, and completely transparent conversation about mental health, about past traumas, about abuse, about the patterns that it forms to be in a video that I just clicked on out of sheer curiosity. Yeah, but it's, it's definitely one of the finer points, the fact that it has reinforced the idea that talking about 
mental health, especially for young men, is reinforced. They're opening up about it, owning it, understanding it, being cognizant and, and wary, and just acknowledging the things that have formed this pattern of behaviour, this, this place that he's in, and the fact that he is taking the steps to move forward and get better and move past it. It's genuinely really really cool to see. Something else that's really cool to see in the video is Austin takes up boxing as part of his his road to his recovery, as part of his progress in moving forward, and he's so developed this real sort of strong mentorship relationship with his boxing instructor, who himself is incredibly supportive and sort of reinforcing of the idea of openness and, and willingness to talk about mental health issues. In fact, he he says something, and I'm just going to give him the final word on this video, because it's something that continuously needs to be thrown into the conversation, something that continuously needs a spotlight shined on it. So I'm going to leave you with these words from Austin's boxing coach. When it comes to mental health issues, if you can't talk about what's going on, then you can't get the help you need. I feel like a lot of men think that's a weakness when it's not. You know, if there's a problem, the weakness is ignoring it. gang we are about running out of time i have so many things still on the list i have so many videos that i want to pull out and talk about and discuss because there's just so much good juicy interesting stuff but for now we're going to round off this episode by talking about our free will how much of it is actually there how free are we we all think that we're free we all would like to think that we're free but is that true is that the actual case going to probe into that in a little bit here i mean just a little bit because this could be something that we expand upon further for future episodes as well it's certainly something that i may talk about with some guests maybe with next week's guest brandy fleck we'll maybe talk about this a little bit with her in a bit more detail but for now we're going to look at the idea of determinism versus free will that is the title of the video it comes from crash course philosophy which by the way if you haven't watched any of their stuff before do go check that out really cool stuff on there. So this video is concentrating on two schools of thought. The first one is hard determinism, and that is basically the belief that all events are caused by past events such that nothing than what does occur could occur. So a predetermined path is always meant to be, basically. Which, you know, has its own romantic inclination to it. It's a wonderful thing to think about. You know, the idea of fate and kismet and things are meant to happen. You're meant to do that thing because it leads you to this other thing and then it leads you to that person that you fall in love with. All of that good stuff. That kind of falls under the canon and umbrella of hard determinism. The other school of thought is libertarian free will, which basically, in a nutshell, is the belief that some human actions, metaphysical actions particularly, are freely chosen. But are they? That's the question. And it's a really interesting question. If you drill into it deep enough, even if you just crank the surface, it opens up so many different questions and trains of thought and possibilities and crossovers and contradictions and connections. It really is, for me, something that I have had an interest in for quite some time from a personal standpoint and also as a research standpoint for the thing that I'm writing. One of the core elements is the idea of determinism, of fate, of interconnectivity. Do things happen for a reason do things happen that then basically dictate what happens next or is it just 
a sense of coincidence and chaos. So this kind of topic has been on my radar for some time, and this video I found really interesting because it kind of distilled a lot of the things I've been thinking about and explained them in actual scholarly terms and, and sort of really broke it down. And it's easy to understand. That's the thing you might think, oh, God, crash course philosophy. This is just going to leave me just without a Scooby-Doo. But honestly, it's broken down and it's explained in a really clear way. And it's, uh, yeah, it's really easy to get a grasp on. So, yeah, I'm not going to go through the entire video, but I am going to look at some of the sort of touchstone moments and sort of the ideas that they look at very briefly. The first one we're going to look at is called event causation. And this is basically the idea that no physical event can occur without having been caused by a previous physical event. So to give you a really straightforward, streamlined example, you, yes, you, lovely listener, you download an episode of this above average podcast onto your podcast capturing device. Let's say it is your iPhone of a phone are available, you are listening to the podcast, you're really enjoying what I'm talking about, and whilst you're listening, you are scrolling through your phone, you're going through your messages, and you see that a couple of days ago you texted, let's say, John, and you think, oh, hang on, this thing that I'm listening to, I think John would really like this. So you open up your messages, and you send John a quick one saying, hey John, this guy is talking about this thing, I think you really enjoy it, we were talking about this once not so long ago, you seemed really into it. You send it over to John, John goes and checks out the show, and while he's on his phone, he decides to open up some social media app, let's say Facebook. Other social media apps are available. He's looking on Facebook, and he sees an advert for a mountain bike, and he's been thinking, oh... I would really like a mountain bike. So he goes onto their website, sees they're having a sale, and buys a mountain bike. John would not have maybe bought that mountain bike had you not recommended the podcast that you yourself had decided to listen to. That is kind of it in a very random niche particular example. It's like a domino effect, or, you know, the idea that... But the idea of event causation is that it is just that, it's a physical event, it is determined by the physical environment, that the physical world, as it were, the tangible world, is the deterministic factor. The other section that they talk about is agent causation, which is the idea that an agent, a person, a being, a being propelled by a mind can start a chain that wasn't caused by anything else. And this kind of ties into the idea of free will, feeding into the idea of determinism. How does exactly a being with a mind start a chain of events if they don't actually freely choose to do the first thing that sets off the chain of events? That in itself begs the question, what is it that actually creates... If that is what happens, if we do, out of free will, choose to do a something, and that something then leads to another thing and sets off that chain of events, if it all starts with one thing, that something, which we have chosen freely to do, how freely have we actually chosen to do it? You know, what prompts the decision to do it in the first place, the decision or the impulse to do that something? Is it just a free thought? If you've ever seen the movie Inception, is it that idea that we've just spawned ourselves, or has that been implemented, not particularly by Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hardy, but by their equivalent, by something that has happened, something that has happened in our past, an experience we've had with somebody, a place, you know, a preference. And then, not to get into too much of a feedback loop, but that creates questions about, well, what exactly formed those things, what exactly shaped those relationships, those memories, those recollections, those preferences, what events or what agent causations created those 
things. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of tangled, but it is just so damn fascinating. I saw a really good example, kind of coincidentally, or, or was it? Huh? There's a question for you, was it coincidentally? You know, was I supposed to? Did all the things that I had done previously that day lead me to see my Instagram feed and then find that post? Or did I look at my Instagram feed because I freely chose to do so? Anyway, whatever it led me to do it, I opened up my Instagram feed and I saw somebody on my timeline had put a post about the Replacements album, Let It Be, which is an amazing record. It's an amazing record. If you're into alternative rock, go check it out if you haven't already. But I'm getting sidetracked. Anyway, they had put a post of Let It Be, the Replacements album, and in the description, they talked about how they had never listened to the Replacements ever because they reminded them of somebody they didn't like at all in high school. They were This person that they're talking about was obsessed with the Replacements. It was their favourite band. They kept banging on about it. And because they were pretty much, from what I can gather from the description, a bit of an arsehole, this person had no interest in ever listening to the Replacements music. They had sort of associated the Replacements with just being an arsehole, essentially. So they didn't for the longest time. But they... I guess, in a moment of maybe free will, maybe determinism, maybe just out-and-out coincidence, decided to listen to Let It Be and found that they had been sort of punishing themselves all these years because they'd found an amazing record that they'd put off listening to because of that person. Yeah, it is It is ultimately deeply fascinating stuff, and it really does pose the question, are we really free? I mean, even the most simplest of decisions can be formed by external actions and experiences. I mean, from this standpoint, really, we're not free, truly. But at the same time, to some degree, we are. Or rather, it's hard to completely shake the feeling of being free, which is good. Because if we did that, if we all submitted wholeheartedly to the idea that we're not free, it would be a pretty grim existence, to say the least. There is so much more that I could dive into with this, and if it's something like Crowley, like anything in this episode that we've talked about that you'd like me to dig and drill a little bit deeper into for a future episode, please do let me know. Also, do let me know your thoughts on determinism and free will. Is it something you've ever contemplated? I really wanted to talk to you guys about a thing called Laplace's Demon, or Laplace's Demon, which is, I think, the actual pronunciation. Knowing my track record, who knows? It, yeah, Laplace's Demon, which is not anywhere nearly as scary as, as it sounds, although it kind of is, because it's all to do with sort of all-knowing entities <laughs> of sorts. That's your homework, anyway. Yeah, if you want to know more about determinism and the, the possibility, the theory of predictability, courtesy of an all-knowing, all-seeing being of sorts, uh, yeah, check that out. Really interesting. And on that note, that sadly brings us to an end. Like I said, I have plenty more videos to talk about, so if you guys like this format, you want another random shuffle topic style jukebox episode, uh, yeah, just let me know. Let me know if you've enjoyed it. Also, if there's topics that you want to throw into the mix for me to purposely check out, please, please do so. I would love for you to do that. So yeah, if there's something that you've been really digging on, something that you've been sort of burrowing a little rabbit hole of your own into, then please let me know what it is. I will dig into that with you. Yeah. Next week, I am joined by another special guest. It is me talking to Brandy Fleck, and she is the inventor, the creator, the producer, the presenter, the uh, the all 
all plate spinning power behind Human Amplified, a podcast and a blog site formerly known as On Being Human. If you are unfamiliar with Human Amplified, please do yourself a solid, guys. Go check it out. I have worked with Randy before. I am going to be on a upcoming episode of On Being Human, so that's something kind of cool. If you've enjoyed this show, if you enjoy what you hear, then you might want to go check out me talking very candidly and frankly about a whole bunch of different topics with Brandy. But next week, she's going to be doing a a return favor. She's coming on my show, and we're going to be talking about her podcast. We're going to be talking about all kinds of different elements of human behavior. So yeah, if you enjoy that side of this show, if you enjoy the sort of more human anthropological based elements of Dying Doubt, then there's, uh, yeah, you want to check out Human Amplified, but you also want to check out Brandy coming on the episode next week. Other than that, gang, that's about it. If you have enjoyed what you've heard, whether you are a new listener or you are an OG Dimer and you haven't done so already, then you should definitely show us some love. And the best way to do so is to subscribe to Dimed Out and you can do that via whatever podcast you get your podcasts from just search for us and subscribe really is that easy and if you are new and you haven't done that yet you're going to get all the forthcoming episodes straight to your device without having to do anything and that is probably the best bit about subscribing to anything is just you know the laziness of it as i've mentioned on previous episodes we do also have a patreon account now so if you have really enjoyed this above average podcast and you want to hear more content then huzzah you can go check us out at patreon.com forward slash dimed out you can read about our one single five dollar tier and all the bonuses you get including a bonus podcast a live q a stream access to the discord channel and other stuff as well so yeah if you want to support the show and you want more content that is the best place to go and last but by no means least if you want to get in touch with me about anything on this episode anything to do with the show anything that's going on in your life what is happening how is january looking for you let me know get in touch the best way to do so is to follow me on instagram or twitter at i am mal foster yeah other than that guys that's it as always thank you for listening look after yourselves and each other and until next time keep it timed out (laughs) 